Welcome back to Shift of the Gaze, our theology for our times. You are listening to episode two, and this is Michael Kimpan, along with Dr. Joanne Marie Terrell, the Associate Professor of Theology, Ethics, and the Arts at Chicago Theological Seminary. We launched our inaugural podcast with a consideration of tenets one and two of Dr. Terrell's Ten Tenets of Art, the first of which is Everyone is an Artist. And the second, anyone can be an artist in any medium if she or he is or they are willing to be a beginner. These are rooted in the Augustinian concept of sacramentality, the notion that an unchangeably good creator created every being and thing in a state of original virtue, which we also discussed in our first podcast episode available on SoundCloud. Today, we continue our discussion with the next four interrelated tenets, tenets three, four, five, and six, and they are as follows. Number three, art is not merely a product, but a process of letting something happen. Number four, artists let something happen by doing and not doing. Artists are practiced in letting. The fifth tenet, Artists move things around, whether words, musical notes, commitments and perspectives, or paint on a canvas, so that they can let transformation happen. And the sixth of Dr. Terrell's Ten Tenets of Art is this. Artists affirm the priority of story over performance, but the more practiced we are at letting the story be told through our medium, the better the performance. Tenet number three states that, Art is not merely a product, but a process of letting something happen. Dr. Terrell, what do you mean by this, and how did you arrive at this fundamental principle of art? I used to regard art of any kind, visual or performing, as commodities, things we buy or acquire because they have value or merit that we individually or collectively ascribe to them based on our aesthetic sensibilities. Yet our aesthetic sensibilities, the things we think are pleasing to us, have themselves been shaped by conscious and unconscious forces and theories of perception that guide our appreciation and understanding of what has value, who has value, and in what priority. This simply means that often what we believe or think we regard as beautiful and worthy of the name art has already been largely predetermined by the prevailing paradigms of the world we have inherited with its gaze askew. As an empiricist and a pragmatist, I ascribed to a representative theory of perception, believing that the knowledge I continuously acquire through my senses can be fairly reproduced, much as a camera produces the image before it, so that what is in the center of the frame becomes the center of the photograph. When I became a protege of the late father of black liberation theology, Dr. James Cone, a student of premier womanist theologian, Dr. Dolores Williams, a student of the late church historian, Dr. James Melvin Washington, and a student of ritual studies with Dr. Tom Driver, my mentor and teachers compelled me to become a student of history the underside of history, as well as the underside of the underside of history, in order to recognize who is telling the story, through whose gaze any and every story is being told. A romanticized gaze on the glorious past is why history that omits the experiences, perspectives, and contributions of over half of humanity can never be her story. 
the historically demonstrable fact that women's voices have been and are legally, socially, and religiously suppressed is one reason why many people even resist the term herstory. And the sad fact that the meta narrative of empire on which contemporary societies are founded is tainted with white supremacy is why our story, humanity's story, has never been and may never be told. But if I can expand my use of the metaphor of the camera as it relates to my discipline, which is systematic theology supplemented by critical historiography, my mentor and teachers taught me to recognize that every photograph encompasses the photographer's gaze. The same holds true in art, other art forms, and I'm speaking particularly about those that purport to represent the imagined divine, such as iconography. So as a critical theologian, I came, I am coming to realize the devastating impact of what Ralph Ellison described as the normative gaze of whiteness that over centuries has produced a standard of whiteness for representations of both divinity and humanity, a conditioned preferential option for white ways of knowing, doing, and being, and imagining God that we can witness in societal norms all over the world, that in the zero-sum mentality of white-mindedness diminish the value of the experiences of black and brown and other people of color and of the people themselves that deprive them of the presumption of Imago Dei and that seek to determine how they can or should best be represented or represented in art and how they should present themselves as artists. Moreover, as a black woman, I've had to do the hard work that proto-womanist foremother Zora Neale Hurston described as getting man off my eyeball, that is, the work of actively resisting the masculinist gaze, which is accompanied by power accrued in the hands of men, that whether we are aware of it or not determines the scope of our gaze, our hearing, and even our loving. Hurston wrote about this normative and limited gaze of masculinity in her celebrated novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God. And Toni Morrison wrote about the normative and limited gaze of whiteness in her novel, The Bluest Eye. In her novel, The Color Purple, Alice Walker, who coined the term womanist to describe black women's agencies and ways of being in the world, picks up on Hurston's and Morrison's insights. In the story, Celie, the story's main protagonist, described God in this way. And isn't this the God we imagine most readily and easily? He big and old and gray-bearded and white. He wear ripe robes and go barefooted. Then Suge Avery rescues Celie from her anthropomorphic and anthropocentric God concept, saying, you have to get man off your eyeball before you can see anything at all, and refers to the rest of creation as inspiration for her self-affirming God talk. As uh, people of color and as women, as sexual nonconformists, as poor people, as differently able-bodied people, as asylum seekers from all nations, as people marginalized in any way, unless and until we shift our gaze we will never learn to see or appreciate our own value, 
beauty, intellect, artistry, or divinity, our giftedness to the world. I relate all of this seeing and learning to see again, whether I'm speaking about human beings as works of art or as those engaging the art of crafting relationships or creating or appreciating works of art to the Eastern concept of letting something happen as opposed to making something happen. Just as the faculty of seeing employs both passive reception of the world at hand and the active use of our brain to interpret what we see, so the concept of letting something happen in the creation of art or in the expression of spirituality has elements that are passive and proactive, that are yin and yang. If we regard art and our capacity to make it as not merely a product, but a result of a creative process of letting something happen with the intention of seeing what is and what can be, then we are able to make our creative impulses available to more faithful, more inclusive, greater representation of the world at hand to include ourselves and all creatures, our concerns, our struggles, our woes, and the things in which we take delight and joy. You seem to have made a distinction between merely producing art by making something happen, even forcing something to happen, and the process of letting in its transformation is not just a passive experience, but an intentional focused or a shift of our gaze, specifically around our theories of perception that guide our appreciation and understanding of what and even as you said, who has value and in what priority. This would suggest then the decentering of accepted standards of art and beauty, which we spoke of in the previous episode, and the recentering of the concept of sacramentality as an opening in order to both perceive and represent through one's chosen medium the infinite beauty of the cosmos. Beginning with our neighbors, human and non-human. So then, in your fourth tenet, you write, Artists let something happen by doing and not doing. Artists are practiced in letting. Having an orientation of sacramentality gives the artist the freedom to do and not do in order to represent faithfully what they will or what they are compelled to represent, whether by religious conviction or by what it is that they find beautiful and worthy. Dr. Terrell, say a little bit more about the practice of letting as you describe it in your fourth tenet. Let me first say that although we are presenting these tenets in a linear fashion, there is no linear apperception of these. Rather, the tenets represent creative people's lived struggle to make beautiful, profound, positive contributions to the world by embracing the work of making art. Letting something happen by doing and not doing is a continuous process that involves emotion and cognition, feeling and sensing, seeing and hearing, surrendering and yielding to the creative impulse or to the creator, depending on how we frame our beliefs, and moving forward in faith, risking being wrong and allowing ourselves to be corrected or our gaze to be righted. The more we do a thing, the more practiced we become, the more proficient, the more recognized, the more emulated, the more convincing, the more convinced we become that we are, in fact, works of art and artists. In other words, becoming an artist, in your view, is not a destination, but it's dependent on a concept of process. Yes, I would like to say that being an artist is a given. 
Becoming conscious of one's artistry and becoming conscientious as an artist depends on having or developing a sacramental theory of perception. Others may not frame it in this religious way at all and may call it something else, but this theory applied to art begins with how we view ourselves and our neighbors, human and non-human, in Augustinian theistic terms through the lenses of our creator's love. Buddhists refer to this as the ever-expansion of meta-consciousness, the extension of loving-kindness to oneself and one's friends, to neutral persons and difficult persons, and to the entire universe through the lived world struggle to gain right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. The noble eightfold path in Buddhism is often summarized in the catch-all term mindfulness and is not dependent on a God concept at all. It is humanistic. In the theistic Abrahamic faith traditions of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, our creator God, who is understood as the embodiment of steadfast love, is included in the equation as the nearest neighbor to whom we owe our deepest regard and is the one through whom we learn to love consistently others and ourselves. And we reflect this regard through the art that we make and that we come to appreciate, and even the art that we refuse to make, as in Judaism and Islam, both of which resist divine imaging as a central tenet of their respective faiths. Even so, theistically and humanly speaking, a sacramental theory of perception refuses to accept the totalizing ways that controllers of discourse and imagery attempt to delimit God and delineate who is worthy of representation. These tenets are indeed interrelated as your fifth tenet picks up on the idea of the process of letting. It reads, artists move things around, whether words, musical notes, commitments and perspectives, or paint on a canvas so that they can let transformation happen. Moving things around to allow transformation is, I think, an interesting way not only to view art, but also the vocation of becoming human, that is, becoming ever more humane in the ways that we relate to ourselves, to one another, and to the entire cosmos. I, I hear in this tenet your notion of decentering piety and recentering justice in all religious traditions, although this is certainly not every artist's motivation or intention. This tenet speaks to the specific genius of the artist as a creator or as a co-creator with God, if you like. Conscientious artists, those devoted to the service of human liberation, know that if the transformation they seek to effect or let take place does not result in the desired transformation, even during the act of creating, then shifts of their own consciousness have to take place. Notes must be changed. Editing, complete erasures even, have to take place. Unintended effects amended. Permissions sought, permissions granted, and permissions withdrawn. Shifts of venue sometimes have to happen because we know that art can be conscripted as well as generated in the furtherance of evil. An example of this is the way that for centuries, the image of God has been hijacked and made to serve the ideologies of sexism, racism, classism, and anthropocentrism. This is patently ridiculous given the claim that we conceive of God as love. 
I agree wholeheartedly with Rumi, the great Sufi mystic, who said that love sometimes wants to do us a great favor, hold us upside down, and shake all the nonsense out. God, Aristotle's prime mover, is love. God, in Christian parlance, is the love in whom we live and move and have our being. Love, the creator, is an artist, a conscientious artist. Conscientious artists shake things up, move things around until a work of art is finally presentable and capable of eliciting not only gasps at the beauty of a work, but also humane and just response to the troubles of the world. Great art shakes us up, if momentarily, if only for the brief time it has captured our attention, but sometimes for longer and with more permanent effect. And Dr. Terrell, this brings us to the sixth of your 10 tenets of art, which will be the final tenet we consider for this, the second episode of Shift of the Gaze. Artists affirm the priority of story over performance, but the more practiced we are at letting the story be told through our medium, the better the performance. This seems so true to me. Even when I have engaged creative individuals and artists on a personal level, the importance of story, storytelling and story dwelling has become primary in this generation's concept of artistic performance and what counts as beautiful. However, and this is why I don't often enjoy various forms of contemporary art, Excellence in performance is what elevates the story in its purest form, unmolested by the distractions of forgotten lines, sloppy strokes of a paintbrush or pen, or a misplaced note. Two questions, I think, are of paramount importance in understanding the spirit behind the letters of this tenant. First, what connotes good art versus bad art when it comes to performance, and this would beg the question of how important is performance. I know you'll discuss this further in a future episode, but perhaps more importantly to an understanding of the spirit of this tenant, what is it that you mean by letting the story be told? As an art form capable of tremendous lasting impact, stories are rooted in actual or imaginable human experience and nearly always contain lessons for humankind by way of example and even by way of negative example, what to do and what not to do if we wish to achieve these results or avoid those consequences. They may contain fanciful or even fantastical elements that strain credibility, such as a virgin birth. We may find a story's main lessons compelling enough to try to convey perhaps because it contains points of resonance with our own stories or because it demonstrates how we ourselves are valued and to whom, and because through it we can demonstrate who it is and what it is we value. In performance, letting the story be told means doing and not doing, getting out of one's own way so that the story can stand on its own merits its lessons can be conveyed, and our performance is enhanced by the degree to which we have learned to let, to trust in the doing and not doing, to surrender and to move forward in faith. And that concludes the second episode of Shift of the Gaze, Our Theology for Our World. Please join us for the third installment of Shift of the Gaze when we discuss the seventh of Dr. Terrell's Ten Tenets of Art, and that is Art may be utilitarian if it bespeaks alliance with life. In the coming days, in your creative work and embodiment of a sacramental gaze, wherever you are, 
Whatever you experience, we hope you dance. And remember, art like beauty is in the eye, the ear, and the heart of the beholder, the hearer, and the lover.